following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to 1 Chronicles 14. We're tracking along with the chapter numbers here with our morning readings, but in 1 Chronicles First Chronicles 14, now Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees with masons and carpenters to build him a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. Then David took more wives in Jerusalem and David begot more sons and daughters. Well, verse 2 is good, verse 3 not so good, just uh, like that, David has violated the uh, commands in Deuteronomy 17. I wonder if he was writing out a copy of God's word, the law, and reading it every day like that passage instructed uh, him to do. I hope so, but I wonder. It says, verse 4, and these are the names of his children whom he had in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobah, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elpelet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Be'eliada, and Elephelet. Verse 8, now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went out against them. Then the Philistines went and made a raid on the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? The Lord said to him, go up, for I will deliver them into your hand. So they went up to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. Then David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, they called the name of that place Baal-perazim. <clears throat> when they left, and when they left their gods there, David gave commandment and they were burned with fire. Then the Philistines once again made a raid in the valley. Therefore, David inquired again of God and, sa- and God said to him, you shall not go up after them, circle around them and come up upon them rather in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear a sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall go out to battle, for God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. So God, sorry, sorry, David did as God commanded him, and they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as Gezer. Verse 17, then the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. So the nations at that time realized they better not make a false move against Israel for God was with them and would protect and keep them. I mentioned this morning uh, that we would have more uh, work to do in Matthew chapter 10, which I intend to undertake if you do not have any Bible questions for me this evening. So I'll give that opportunity. And if you do not, then we'll carry on with our series. So I'll just give you a moment. If you don't have any, that's fine. There's no problem at all. I said on my notes this morning at the bottom, page 8, to be continued, and I didn't tell you that I already had, um, let's see, up to page 13. So, yeah, I enjoyed studying this this week. It got to be too much, though, for one, one message. All right, let's turn to then to Matthew chapter 10, please. 
We're coming to a, a soon a critical stage in the Gospel of Matthew uh, in which we're beginning to see that there is some severe opposition to the Lord. Uh, in verse 34 of chapter 9, the Pharisee says he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And this is the foundation of what is called the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And uh, what was happening here is they were continuously over a course of time uh, over and over again saying, this guy is of the devil, this guy casts out demons by Beelzebub, this guy is demonic, this guy is not from God. And they just said that over and over, indicating that their hearts were set and hardened against the Lord. But the Lord carries on and says, I want to uh, continue to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that the kingdom is at hand to the people of Israel and see if they will receive it, even if some of the leaders are hard-hearted against it. And so he gathers his 12, he instructs them in the assigned mission, uh, tells them to go and find uh, hospitality in worthy homes uh, and let their peace be upon those homes. And we looked at those uh, principles uh, this morning. And we stopped at verse number 14, or just before verse 14, uh, where we'll start at verse um, actually 12 just to get a running head start. It says, And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you, as I pictured this morning, kind of bouncing off the front door back to them uh, as if the door was slammed in their face kind of a thing. And then verse 14 says, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, you know, there's the slammed door. When you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. I have uh, sometimes had occasion to uh, either be in a, a pen, uh, pen pal, not pen pal, but a back and forth letter writing with uh, a number of people in the city of Ann Arbor, uh, and also, uh, you know, we observe, for instance, uh, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul being kicked out of an entire city. Leaders there in the city or the Jewish people in the city or, you know, base, baser fellows get together and they, they, they want to get rid of him. And uh, so, you know, we've experienced individual uh, closed doors here, and we see those kind of citywide closed doors uh, thankfully, at least based on the profession of um, so-called diversity that the city of Ann Arbor has, uh, we have not and, and could not logically be kicked out of the city uh, because they ought to have uh, a room in their diversity for Christian thought. And um, I mentioned that to uh, the mayor as I spoke with him briefly this afternoon uh, at the event that we were at. And uh, we talked about some other things briefly as well, but that was one thing that I elevated in, in his you know, thought, that kind of diversity, allowing uh, Christians to have their freedom to be able to worship. And, and, and should be, we should be welcome, and it should be a peaceful and happy place for us to be here, as well as any city in the state or in the United States, whether uh, folks agree or disagree with our position on theology and how the Scripture teaches. But we're going to run into, from time to time, opposition. And in this context where we are, mostly individual opposition, where people will be very um, 
I'll call them recalcitrant, (laughs) very opposed to the gospel, atheists especially. Uh, as, As some of you know, we've done over the years a couple of mailings to thousands of homes, and one of the interesting features of at least two of those mailings that I remember was that, you know, after we sent it to several thousand homes, I'll get a letter or an email back, and most of the contacts that I get back uh, have been from atheists who don't want to hear from us or want to engage in some kind of debate. You know, we've obviously pushed a button there that is unhappy for them. Um, and so I've been able to engage a couple of folks in that regard, but very, very um, dismissive kind of arguments against uh, Christians and, you know, talking about our imaginary friend and, and all this sort of thing. It's just, uh, it's just unfortunate. But we have instructions here for how to deal with people who are opposed to us. And it says, whoever will not receive you or hear your words, when you depart, shake off the dust from your feet. <clears throat> now, the figure of speech doesn't really work as well in our culture, uh, you know, with pavement everywhere and nice sidewalks and all that sort of thing. But it's, so it's a little different, but the idea is still the same. And the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, 51, uh, the text there records him doing that very thing. I'll just turn there in Acts 13. And uh, they were at Antioch. And um, it says the Jews, verse 50, stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them. And then they came to Iconium. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the the only problem for the authorities, uh, as it were in Iconia or Antioch, rather, was that Paul left, but he didn't leave entirely. He left a witness of the gospel there in their city. So they had to deal with that going forward. But the disciples there were happy because they were filled with the Spirit and uh, were joyful because they were saved. Well, in any case, shaking the dust off the feet, uh, either they were facing people who wouldn't even allow them to talk, you know, just put up the hand, or people who let them speak but ignored what they said, in effect, closing their ears to the message. So in that case, the disciples should shake off the dust from their feet. And for them, this is a well-known metaphor, which meant rejection and separation. You as a, as a believer picture in your mind that you want nothing to do with the attitude displayed by the people who reject the gospel. And you picture that by getting rid of even the dust on your shoes, on your, on your sandals. You dust them off and say, look, I don't even want the dust of this place clinging to my feet. The people associated with that dust will be recipients of severe judgment by God. That's what the text says, starting in verse 15. It's a very scary statement where Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than uh, in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, if you just remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, you almost cannot imagine a worse judgment. I mean, just imagine the calamity of the city of Ann Arbor being pummeled by volcanic lava from the sky and destroyed in a day. 
I mean, that's, that doesn't, it doesn't get much worse than that, or so it seems. You remember those two ancient cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, were wiped out for their sin, a very clear, clearly specified sin of, of um, misappropriation, of misuse of God's gift of intimacy and uh, of homosexuality there in that place, not certainly the lack of, uh, what is it, people say the lack of hospitality there. That was a, that's a, a stretch uh, beyond stretches. But uh, they refused to listen to the message. They refused to repent of their sin. They refused to acknowledge their king. And they were uh, you know, going to face a judgment worse than being decimated by fire from heaven, whether that was uh, fire and brimstone from a volcano nearby or a supernatural bombardment from heaven. How do you get a, a more severe punishment than that? Well, there is one way. If you just let your eyes go down in your text to chapter 10, verse 28, you'll see it. It says in 10:28, the Lord does, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's the worst punishment that we're talking about. They, in, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, yes, they had that physical destruction, but there's something beyond that. There's some judgment beyond that. And uh, if you want to get into more technical details, uh, sometimes people ask the question, are there levels of judgment, levels of judgment in hell? And I think the answer to that question is yes. It's not clearly specified exactly how that works. But like there are levels of reward in heaven, it appears that there would be levels of judgment in Hades and in hell after that in the eternal state. But again, how does that actually work out? I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm not going to go into uh, you know, what the temperature settings are and that sort of thing. It just is not profitable to do that. But it does appear evident that there is here, at least, there's a worse kind of judgment. So in any case, um, that's what they're supposed to do with people who will not listen to them. And that's what I was indicating this morning, kind of getting ahead of myself, was saying when somebody rejects the gospel, you may still pray for them, but you also have to balance that over against going on to the next door and talking to the next person so that they will respond, see if they will respond to the gospel, not just keep banging your head against the brick wall of somebody who will not listen. They've had the opportunity if you've told them the gospel, and they should respond. If they don't, then it's, on, it's not on you, it's on them for not responding. So the Lord uh, uh, gives the power to the disciples. He, he calls out the 12 uh, to their special mission. He assigns them the mission in verses 5 to 15. Now what does he do? Well, basically, from verses 16 to 39, unfortunately, we have to look at the dangers of the mission, the dangers of the mission. He says, behold, verse 16, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpent and harmless as doves. The world is full of wolves, my friend. The Apostle Paul gives us insight into wolves. He said there'll be some from outside, some who will rise up from in the midst of the church. This is Acts 20 when he's speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church. 
and telling them that they need to watch out, that uh, their, their job is to protect the flock, it's to guard the flock, it's to prepare them for false teachers, for unbelievers. Uh, here, wolves could also be, I think, uh, governmental leaders or community influencers that have power. You are sent, being sent out into the midst of those people, those people that although they might have a nice demeanor toward you one day, may be totally opposed to you the next day in the gospel for the sake of the gospel. And today people go under a nice-sounding guise in their opposition to the Lord. I mean, uh, some will you know, talk about keeping the peace or we've got to protect the children you know, from Christian doctrine, indoctrination, or we have to stand up against the immorality of Christian teaching. You've heard that before, haven't you? People that believe that Christian teaching is immoral, and they have to stand up against that, and they're doing us a favor. In fact, some even think of themselves as doing God a good service by what they were doing. And I, I hasten to uh, be reminded of circumstances in church history where so-called Christians killed even other professing Christians because they didn't fall in line with their exact doctrine. Uh, Calvin, even, involved in that kind of activity. Of course, the Catholic Church involved in that with the Inquisition. You have believers going after other believers who were Anabaptists, you know, rebaptizers, because those people, they, the Anabaptists are basically what we are. In a sense, they were saying, look, if you've been baptized as a baby in the church, you weren't legitimately baptized, so we're going to baptize you again the proper way. But that was seen as an attack on the institutional church that had governmental power, and so some of those people were persecuted even to the point of death. And I just wondered to myself, did those persecutors ever read Matthew 10 in the following verses in 16 and 17 and and then uh, John chapter 16 and verse 2, where they thought they were offering God a service. Did they ever stop to think? Did they ever stop to think? It's kind of like um, one of the obvious things in Scripture when the Lord says to us, you know, don't use vain repetitions in your prayers. And then there are whole systems of prayer that are you know, repetitious, simply over and over mouthing the same words over again. And you wonder, did they ever read that portion of Scripture and think how does it apply to that practice that they have in their church? Ignorance of the Scripture leads to bad practice and uninformed practice. In some ways, I, I have to think it's almost willful ignorance. I mean, it's right here in the printed page if you just read it. God spare us from being ignorant or willfully ignorant of the text of Scripture. We don't want to be that. Um, so persecution. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, uh, you're, and beware of men. So that's what I kind of put as our response. First of all, be sheep, be wise, be harmless, and beware. Be wise, be harmless, beware, and be sheep. The this is another thing that kind of marvels me when I think of it. The Christian person is harmless like a sheep. Harmless like a sheep. The most harmless kind of person there is 
It always amazes me how the world treats the Christian and the church as if there's some, you know, dangerous thing. When you, you know, you're supposed to be teaching, you're teaching Christian doctrine and, and people see you as, you know, the most dangerous man in town. You're not dangerous at all. If you just leave these, you know, if you I'm speaking to leaders who are opposed to Christianity, if you just leave these Christians alone, yeah, they will try to persuade other people to become Christians. But what other kind of citizen would you like to have than Christian citizens in your domain? Peace-loving, God-loving, righteous people in your domain. What's wrong with that? They're not revolutionaries. They're not criminals. They're not rabble-rousers. They're not rioters. They're not mobsters, if they're rightly following the faith, of course. True that Christian citizens will demand righteousness and won't like it when you take bribes and there's embezzlement and all kinds of other things. Oh, maybe that's why they don't like Christian citizens, calling them out for their evil doing. But if you take that really as a threat, I'm again speaking to worldly leaders, if you take that as a threat, you need to check your sensitivity and be tough enough to do your sin again, speaking to those who want to do that, without being offended by Christian preaching. If you're going to sin, sin. And don't, don't let some little Christian preacher bother you. It's like, you know, with Herod. What does he care that John the Baptist says you can't have her as your wife because she belongs to another? Why doesn't he just ignore him? Put him aside. That's what he should have done. The Christian also is to, to not only be a, a harmless sheep, but he's also to be wise and not foolish. Examples, I think, of unwise Christians abound. There are those who repeat foolish conspiracies. There are those who do not make wise life choices, those who make misguided decisions, those who heed discredited news sources, and some who act as if they're persecuted People ridicule them for those things, or if they act weird and then people call them out for being weird, they think they're being persecuted. Not so. The Christian also is thirdly told to beware. So I combine harmless and sheep together. Um, I combine. I don't, do you, any of you have done any sheep herding before? Are sheep actually quite harmless? They seem to be. Although I understand goats can be a little uh, cantankerous, but sheep, I, I don't know. I mean, they seem nice. Um, they kind of go astray sometimes and need some guidance. But So we're supposed to be like harmless, like sheep, and we're to be wise and not fools, and we're to be aware of the things going on out there. We're to be wary of pagan people to a certain extent because they will deliver us up to the authorities. They will arrest us and try to put us in jail and take money and property and punish us physically and so forth. That does happen, has happened in certain places. We saw it in the book of Acts uh, all the time. Uh, they, they seem to delight in um, opposing our freedom to worship this lately incident here with the COVID and shutdowns and all that showed that very clearly. Um, and so we should, you know, take advantage of the legal shields provided for us. We need to do that. So, for example, for Paul, 
in Acts 22, he uh, said as he was about to be beaten by Roman soldiers, he, he said, is it lawful for you to beat a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Well, that put the brakes on all of that. That saved him from a sixth beating, I guess. He had five, five times he received 39 stripes, less one. Well, here was, so now he didn't get number six. That's good. Um, but we need to make use of those kinds of uh, provisions that are made for us. And we have quite strong provisions uh, provided for us in our own system of law, and we need to exercise those strong provisions. But we generally need to use a wise approach to life where we keep our heads down and we avoid unnecessary controversy. We don't go around stirring up trouble. We live for God and we do what we can, but we avoid unnecessary uh, controversy. Um, in the mission, um, gospel mission of South America, one of our principles of practice is that the missionaries are not uh, permitted to appeal to governing authorities just for any old thing. They are to make use of the normal means and normal channels and not appeal to you know, the basis of their, their U.S. citizenship to get special privileges and, and that sort of thing. Um, unless it's absolutely necessary uh, to do so. And also we, in our principles at GMSA, encourage folks, look, if you're not welcomed in a certain community, move on to the next one. Just move on, like is exampled here, as we see in the book of Acts as well. Now, again, we're remembering that this is not the Great Commission. This is the Kingdom Commission. This is limited to Israel, not to the nations of the world. Uh, but because the later commission involves also the propagation of divine truth, just like this one does, there's going to be similarities. Remember, strings that attach the two uh, things. There are going to be some similarities between them. Um, but not all our brothers and sisters throughout history have experienced bad things because of their proclamation of the gospel. Some, perhaps many, have. Uh, we have not basically, for the most part, over the years here in our country, experienced bad things for the sake of the gospel. But as the times of the Gentiles draw to a close, that is, this age comes to an end, the frequency of persecution will grow, will, in, will increase, and will grow more and more. We can be confident of that because the scriptures tell us that perilous times will come and things will be worse and worse. Of course, some of our brothers and sisters in the world may feel that they can hardly uh, distinguish their current situation from tribulation conditions. I mean, there are some who really are suffering badly right now in different countries in the world. And I can hardly blame them for thinking they, we must be in the tribulation. They're not, but that's easy for us to say. Very easy for us to say as we, you know, go home from church on Sunday evening and have our meal and kick back in our lazy boy chair and say, hey, what's on TV tonight, you know? Um, it, it's just luxury, you know? It's an, a life of ease, no persecution, or very little. And so we forgive them for seeing it a little differently than we do because of their very much different situation. Well, we go then to verse 17, and we're coming to what I call a persecution part two. 
we dealt with part one in the first part of 16 and 17, but then the um, next part of 17 through 26, um, it says, but beware of men, they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So religious and secular leaders will cooperate together to persecute Christians. They will do so with what we would call cruel and unusual punishments. Do you think that scourging would fly today in the American system of jurisprudence? Scourging, brother? Probably wouldn't go, would it? Now, cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, And, of course, there are all kinds of other things that were even more cruel and more unusual than that that were done in church history up to uh, flayings and burning at the stake and all kinds of things that were just too nasty to uh, even contemplate. Again, people thinking they're doing God's service when they're actually doing the devil's work. What the anti-God leaders will intend is to destroy the work of God, but as they press harder and harder, they will only serve to spread the gospel and their work will fail. Um, you've probably read stories in church history of people who intended to smash out the gospel, and by and by they're dead and the gospel remains. <laughs> the, the Bible they tried to destroy grows even more, uh, and so on. What will happen instead is that these efforts at persecution will turn out as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Uh, verse 18 says, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Note Paul, for example, who reported in Philippians what? That the things which have happened to me have fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. What he's saying is what's happened to me is actually advanced the gospel. You know, you look from one perspective and you say, man, Paul can't travel. He's in prison. The gospel is, is put to shame and all that looks terrible. And Paul is saying, actually... I was able to bring the gospel right into Caesar's household so that later on in the book of Romans, he's able to say in those, or in Philippians, I think it is, that, uh, yeah, at the end of Philippians, that those of Caesar's household send their greetings, Christian greetings, to you, the recipients of this letter to the Philippians. Evidently, some in the king's own family and servants who had received the love of Christ because Paul was sent there to testify and on the way Felix and Festus and Agrippa were other leaders who heard the gospel and saw that it was not a revolutionary uh, anti-emperor cult or something. Uh, It was Christian faith. Of course, didn't believe in worshiping the emperor, but it wasn't against law and order in in the Roman government. And it wasn't any threat to their leadership. There was nothing chargeable, worthy of death against them. The Lord tells us that if we encounter that situation... Do not worry about what you will say. Let me pause and just mention, I think, uh, although I haven't recently uh, reviewed all the details, I just I understand that uh, I think it was the city of Los Angeles had to settle with uh, Grace Church and John MacArthur's ministry after the persecution that they laid up upon them during COVID. And it turned out to be a great victory for the church and a great testimony for the Lord that uh, he protected them. And they actually had to pay and I think it was even legal fees and, and other uh, things for the church there, which stood up as uh, kind of a proxy for all the churches. There were other churches as well in California that did the same, but as a proxy for churches there and also throughout 
the, uh, the United States. Um, I know MacArthur feels that because they have a large church and the resources to do that, uh, that they were called to that kind of ministry. They did something similar back in the, I want to say mid to late 80s, when there was a huge lawsuit against Christian counselors and say, you know, trying to prevent them from offering Christian counsel. And uh, the church there stood up to that and uh, won a case, I think, in the Supreme Court for that uh, situation and, uh, and really helped the Christian counseling movement, if you will, keep, uh, keep moving ahead. But regardless of that, what it ended up being was a testimony of God's grace to the church. And there's a similar thing that we see um, in the next section here. Uh, and the Lord says, if you encounter that kind of situation, don't worry about what you're going to say, verse 19 and 20. When they deliver you up, don't worry about what uh, or how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you shall speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So the Spirit of God will help you when the time comes. You say, well, what am I going to do if I, if I have to testify to my faith, if I'm put in jail for my faith, if I'm put on the spot for my faith? Now, I understand this in Matthew uh, 10, 19, and 20, not to be a prohibition against preparation, but a prohibition against worry. Okay, so he's not saying you can't think about what you'll say or you can't um, you know, study up on your apologetics and know your Bible and all of that. You can think, but what does he say? Uh, do not worry about being anxious about it, that's what it is, being anxious about it is not going to add anything. It's just going to serve to make you nervous, serve to not function the way that it should. So don't think that this means, you know, some people, I've really heard of this in some churches, not far, far from here, that the pastor believes it's wrong to study. Wrong to study. Because when he steps up and mounts the pulpit there, God's going to give him what he needs to say. And then he just goes off and rambles on about whatever he feels like at the time. That is not what this text is saying at all. It's not a prohibition of preparation, not even an encouragement to not prepare, because the Scripture tells us to study, study to show ourselves approved unto God. A workman, uh, being, uh, being in that pulpit there or this pulpit, does take some work, trust me. Um, if you don't believe that, then I'll assign you one Sunday night or Sunday morning and see what you think uh, about it. Uh, so the funny stories about young preachers who, you know, prepare, 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 and they go up and they preach, and 10 to 15 minutes they're done, and they're like, huh, what? I thought I was supposed to speak for 45 minutes. And so the pastor gets up and he, you know, because he knew that was going to happen. <laughs> He'd be the young young first-time preacher, so he, he finishes the time with the message that he's prepared. But anyways, um, it is work. It's not something that you can just you know, blow off and say, well, the Spirit of God will tell me in the, in the moment. No, he won't. No, he won't. A call to preach is a call to prepare. So they're intending to destroy the work of God. It's actually going to be advanced. Uh, you're, we're not to worry about the situation uh, at all, just to, you know, carry on and, and do what the Lord has called us to. We move on then to uh, some other 
material here, and I don't want to spend tons of time on all of this, but um, we see certain things that are, that are disturbing. I mean, verse 21, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and the children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to think of parents turning in their children to the authorities to have them persecuted for the faith, children doing that to their parents. What, what are these people thinking? Where's natural affection? Where's family love? You know, at least just keep your mouth shut. You don't support what your parents or family are doing, your children. Um, you'll be hated by everybody for my name's sake. Oh, and children rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. How evil is that? How evil. But in the latter days, the times will come when people will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. They'll be disobedient, hateful to parents, murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, and so on. Almost unthinkable but it will happen. You'll be hated by everybody for the sake of the Lord. The Roman emperor induced this um, in people. I mean, you know, the mob mentality is pretty easy to influence. All you have to do is tell them a bunch of lies enough times and they'll begin to believe it. I mean, if you tell them the Christians are cannibals, you know, they have these secret meetings where they eat the flesh of a person and drink his blood, they're cannibals. They become odious in the sight of the populace, and then the populace thinks they're doing a good thing by getting rid of those people because they don't, you know, the populace has enough sense to not like cannibalism either. Um, but that's what Nero did and burned Christians as nightlights in the city of Rome. Verse 22 um, But he who endures to the end will be saved. There are two interpretations of this verse. I've, I've kind of worked on this a little bit more um, since I first studied this. And have, coming to the passage with a fresh look at it, I want to share with you here from my notes what I have. This is taken in two ways. Some teach that enduring to the end speaks of physical deliverance at the end of persecution. Those who make it to the end, when the Lord returns, will be rescued. A case can be made for that. And it, it will happen to some people at the end of the Great Tribulation. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that the church is going to be raptured. Seven years of tribulation are going to fall upon the earth. The last three and a half, known as the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. And there will be the mark of the beast, and there will be you know economic issues and famine and killing and all, all kinds of supernatural disasters and everything like that. And there will be some believers who will, by the skin of their teeth, I think, make it to the end of that seven-year tribulation period. And they will be welcomed into the kingdom by the Lord when the Lord judges the nations as, as a, a sheep on the right hand, goats on the left hand, welcomes the sheep into his kingdom, the goats he sends off into eternal punishment. Those sheep are the ones who have survived the rigors of the tribulation, and they will be brought into that kingdom. Okay, so it's not speaking of all the saints from all eternity, and you, know, you go there to that judgment of sheep and goats, and you find out which side you're on. That's not that, it's not that at all. This is just the people that are alive at the time of the return of Christ. If we're... 
If we're dead and gone, we're already with the Lord. We're not awaiting that judgment. Our sin has already been judged. We will see the judgment seat of Christ and be evaluated for rewards. But in any case, that's one view that those who make it to the end will be saved. I have taken that view and then I've backed off from that view and um, I think you can make a good case for the other view as well, which is that others teach that this speaks of the doctrine of perseverance. Doctrine of perseverance. Namely, if your faith endures to the end, whether that end comes by death or by persecution or death by persecution or, or you survive till the end of the second coming of Christ, you will be spiritually delivered. True disciples who survive the tribulations of persecution and those who die by persecution. So if you survive the persecution or you die by it, you will experience spiritual salvation. In both cases, they maintain faith in Christ up to the end, the end of their life or the end of the uh, testing, the tribulation. So I'm leaning in this second direction at this point, although I, under, I, I understand the I understood the text in the first way before. But as I examine it more, it appears redundant to me to say that those who endure to the end physically will be rescued physically because they had already made it to the end. Rather, the spiritual pressures of persecution will be tremendous and will flush out those who are fake believers. Just put yourself in the the mindset of okay, let's suppose that I'm not raptured and I have to live through that period of tribulation. The Antichrist is ruling. Uh, There's war going on between the kingdoms of the north and the south and the Antichrist and uh, the mark of the beast and you can't buy or sell and there's all kinds of nasty stuff going on. And if you're a Christian, you're going to be pressed beyond measure as to the reality of your faith. We've, I think we experienced just a little bit of that at the beginning of the pandemic when the, when the government said, you cannot meet, or you cannot meet under these certain circumstances, and we had to make the decision, no, we are going to meet starting in end of May and early June, and those religious exemptions that are there, but are kind of buried, we're thankful for those, at least in the state of Michigan, but we're going to meet anyway. And you, you almost started to get the feeling of that oppressive government coming down on you and saying, you cannot exercise your faith. And you have to make a decision now. Am I a Christian? Am I going to obey God or am I going to obey man? I'm not saying that it was the biggest deal in the world. It was a small thing compared to what people during the tribulation will have to face. But just imagine yourself in that situation, and tremendous pressure that you will face to deny the faith and just go along to get along. Will you go along to get along? Would you, if you were in that spot? If your life is under threat of death, will you deny the Lord? Now, I'm a staunch supporter of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, but it's not right to explain that doctrine in such a way that it's like a work that has to be done in order to maintain my salvation. That's not at all the case. Nor is it to be cast as a reason to always doubt my eternal security. Some people 
mischaracterize the doctrine of perseverance and say, oh, it's just a work. It's just you people disguising salvation under works. Or, uh, you know, you, you never can persevere enough. You never can be good enough, so you're never going to have assurance of salvation. That's not at all the case either. That's a mischaracterization of it. Perseverance teaches that because of God's work in a true believer's life, he or she will continue for the rest of their lives to believe and not to ultimately fall or fail. It's not saying we will never sin. It's not saying that. But it's saying we will not depart from the faith. Ultimately, perseverance is based on God, not on me. You see that? It does involve our responsible participation, but this is the key. Christians persevere because God preserves. Christians persevere because God preserves. It's the grace of God that operates in us and makes us able to continue to believe. If our, if our, if our salvation were up to us, we wouldn't be saved. If our keeping if our preservation was up to us, if our perseverance was ultimately up to us, what would happen? Ultimately up to us, we would fail. It's not ultimately up to us. It's up to God, okay? It's up to God. And so because God preserves us, we continue to believe. Uh, and I think this is, to me, the best way of kind of balancing the, the ideas of personal responsibility and God's sovereignty and salvation. Um, you know, in light of like a verse in Hebrews 3, where it says in 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Boy, that if really throws people for a loop. You know, we have become if we hold. All that is is perseverance. In other words, the continuance of faith shows the reality of faith. Does that make sense? The continuance of faith shows the reality of that faith. It's not, uh, it's not that difficult to grasp, but it's not human effort-based. Human, human responsible participation is involved because God is at work in us. I mean, what's another verse I could use? Um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is, you know it? You got the verse memorized? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The juxtaposition of those two verses is often not recognized, but you're working out your salvation. You're living it out because God is living it in. You're working it out because God's working it in. He has worked in you. So um, am I involved or is God involved in my continuing Faith, yes, the answer is yes, both, both of us. God is and I am because God is. Well, we'll put that aside for the moment. Be just because you continue to believe and you're very staunch and you're a fine believer doesn't mean you have to subject yourself to more and more persecution. What do I mean by that? What I mean is it's not chicken to flee. You're not a chicken if you flee. Okay? Why? Because the Lord says, verse 23, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. 
Don't just sit there and let yourself be killed if you can avoid it. You know, get in the car and go on to the next, down the road to the next city. You don't have to be foolish. You don't have to say, well, I'm, I'm going to just tough it out, you know, and if they kill me, they kill me. Oh, no, you might just decide the wisest approach is I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. Flee. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Even under those circumstances, the Lord says, you're not going to finish the work that I've assigned for you to do. There's nothing shameful about fleeing. Do you know how many times Paul did it? Is it good enough for Paul? Is it good enough for you? Yeah, I would think so. Um, God knows we cannot overcome strong persecution. God knows we're not in places of power. God knows that the people that do have power may have the power to arrest you, flog you, beat you, kill you. He knows that the mission cannot be accomplished effectively when there is that kind of persecution. In fact, he may use that persecution to awake some of the souls in that community You've got the leaders persecuting the Christians, and you've got other people looking onto that situation and saying, wait a minute, why are they going after them so hard? Why don't they just back off? What is it that these Christians have that's so odious to the leaders? Maybe I ought to look into that. I don't like those leaders that much anyway. Maybe these Christians are right. God might use the persecution to turn others to Christ because of what they have heard. Meanwhile, the gospel ministers have moved on to another place and are spreading the gospel there as well. Um, you remember what happened in the book of Acts? God said, I want you to, or Jesus said, God said to the disciples, you know, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. For the first little while in the book of Acts, 3, 4, chapter 5, 6, it's all centered around Jerusalem. Chapter 7, Stephen dies under the direction of the man named Saul of Tarsus. And it says in Acts 8, 1, a great persecution that had broken out against the church and the disciples fled. They went, and they were preaching the gospel as they went. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if somebody says, well, why did you come here? Why did you move into our town? Well, let me tell you, we're persecuted out of Jerusalem for our faith, for our religious faith. Well, what is your faith? What is it all about? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. And they go ahead and they evangelize the community. Paul was persecuted himself. He learned how, much, how many great things he must suffer for the sake of the Lord and he couldn't stay long in some cities where he was, Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 16, Acts 17. Each of those chapters, he's kicked out of cities. He's kicked out of Thessalonica. He's beaten in Philippi, jailed there. Um, you know, he comes to Thessalonica out of Philippi and, and uh, says, you know, I'm preach I was preaching the gospel out of much fear and trembling. I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen. We might get another treatment. He was stoned in one city and left for dead outside of the city. Terrible what he was, but he was spreading the gospel as he went. And that's what happened, how God used the persecution to spread the gospel to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And God has done that from time to time. You, you know, you might be frustrated like I am at times. Think about all the refugees 
and all the people movement across borders. And you might think, oh, how unlawful and how terrible and, and how dumb that is and how you know, our leaders are stupid and all that sort of thing. But you think of uh, like Syria, the revolution or the, the civil war in Syria. Now people are running over to Turkey and different places, Lebanon. There is, although that's all a mess and it shouldn't happen, there is then an opportunity for the gospel to reach those people. And that's what's happened. So God uses that perhaps to simply to save souls and bring them into contact with something they would not have been in contact with. They just left maybe a country that's close to the gospel came somewhere that's not. Well, the persecution will continue. The gospel will continue to spread, but the disciples will not even blanket the nation of Israel before the Lord returns. And I don't know exactly how that functions, but I will say this, it's very difficult today to start new works in Israel. There's some things that go on there. Um, Some parts of the nation of Israel aren't even under Jewish control, are they? They're under uh, Arab or Muslim control. So how do you go there and preach the gospel? You know, you probably get a hard time (laughs) trying to do that. So um, there could be some places that are just off limits. And the persecution could be so difficult that they spread out from Israel to the rest of the world and started to evangelize the rest of the world from Acts 10 forward. The Gentiles became the center focus piece of God's work, especially from Acts 15 on. And um, you're, you have a situation where you know, that work is, is, is kind of put on pause. So somebody, by the way, who says that you know, we have to evangelize the whole world before the Lord returns, I think they're a little out of order biblically, because although we would like to do that, he says, you will not reach all these cities. Didn't he say that? You will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So they'll be like, you know, cut off or to be, you know, the pause. Talk about a project on hold for 2,000 years, trying to get back there and, and evangelize these people who need the Lord. Um, We'll have to stop there tonight and and just chew on that thought. But let's do our part to make sure that the gospel does spread as far and wide as it can. So we'll pick up there uh, Wednesday or whenever we have opportunity again. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for helping us to read and study together up through the middle part of chapter 10 in Matthew's gospel. And Lord, help it to have been informative and for us to develop in our conviction of the need to be involved in the Great Commission, even as these men were involved in the Kingdom Commission, especially given to the nation of Israel. And thank you, Lord, for each one of these people here, for each one of those listening online. My prayer is that your blessing will rest upon them and that your peace will go with them to their homes and reside there. In Jesus' name, amen.